I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy, inerrant, and powerful word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In church tradition, we call this Lord's Day Palm Sunday. It's when we remember the event that initiated the last week of Jesus Christ's earthly life and ministry when he entered Jerusalem for the last time. I don't know if you've ever seen artist renderings of this, but the pictures that that people have tried to, to draw to try to represent this event, I don't think do it justice. Scholars estimate that there may well have been as many as two million people in Jerusalem for a typical Passover celebration in the early first century. Two million people. That means when we look at this event here, knowing of the crowds that are spoken of in Scripture, it's entirely possible that we're talking about tens of thousands of people involved in this event. As I look at all the different elements that make up this story, I find myself wondering why, in the tradition of the church, did they choose to focus on the palm branches in order to come up with the name for the Sunday? Palm Sunday, why do we call it that? In all of the gospel accounts, the palm branches are actually a very small detail in the story. Could be left out without any real problem and taking anything really significant away from the story. Matter of fact, only in John's gospel do we find out that the branches that are spoken of were taken from a palm tree. If John hadn't thrown that little detail in, we wouldn't even have known that they were palm branches. As I thought about it, I thought, why don't we call this Sunday Donkey Sunday? Now, I know it doesn't have the same pious, sacred ring to it that Palm Sunday has. But I have to believe the Lord would be pleased if we called it Donkey Sunday. 
try greeting each other next year. Happy Donkey Sunday and see if anybody remembers what we talked about this year. It would more accurately highlight what I feel to be the prop or the element in the story that the Lord would have us focus upon as we read the story. It's really the donkey that communicates the important message of this passage, not the palm branches. Putting together what we know from the four accounts, the four gospel accounts, and this is one of those rare New Testament stories where you have a version of it from each of the four gospel writers. If you put those stories together, what you find out is that on the Saturday, the Sabbath of the Jews, Jesus had spent the day with his friends, his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. And what John tells us in his account is that that entire community and the areas around Bethany were still buzzing about the, one of the most remarkable miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly life, which happened there in Bethany, which was the raising of Lazarus himself. It was a, an amazing miracle, raising somebody from the dead by a power of his word alone four days after they had died. And so on this first day of the week, this Sunday, Jesus leaves Bethany with his disciples, but what the gospel writers tell us is that because of all the buzz about Jesus, all the, 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 the uh, amazement that people had about his ministry at this stage of his ministry, there were crowds that left with him from Bethany and accompanied him on the two-mile journey up to Jerusalem. Well, as they begin, this Jesus, in the midst of this crowd of disciples and other curiosity seekers and, and uh, fledgling seekers, maybe, Jesus tells two of his disciples, pulls them aside and says, go to that little village over there called Bethphage, and there you're going to find not just a donkey, but a mother donkey, and it's foal, it's, it's young donkey. And I want you to bring them to me. Now, we don't know if he knew about this by divine supernatural you know, insight or whether this was something he arranged in advance. We don't know, but they were there, and the disciples bring them. And as they bring them, and they probably brought the mother donkey because the young donkey would, probably wouldn't have come on its own. But it's interesting that it's the young donkey, the foal, that Jesus chooses to ride upon. The disciples lay their cloaks, their outer garments, on the two donkeys, probably because they weren't sure which one Jesus intended to ride. They put them there like saddle blankets so he could ride on them. And he chooses the foal. He rides on the young one, which had never been ridden before, and finishes the ride into the gates, the main gates of Jerusalem, on a donkey and all this crowd around him. What I want you to notice, first of all, about this account is how Jesus orchestrates the whole thing. He orchestrates it. He sets it up. He plans it. He sets it up so it would happen this way. And by pointing that out, what I'm saying is it's a remarkable shift in his strategy from what you know from reading the other gospel, the earlier accounts in the gospel. He had, if anything, avoided public displays of adherence to him. He avoided creating a scene whenever possible. He repeatedly told those who witnessed his, his miracles earlier in his ministry, he said, don't tell anyone what you've seen. He said to his disciples when they confessed that he was the Christ, he said, don't tell anyone. 
And when crowds would get large around him, he tended to withdraw to kill the momentum of the movement, so to speak. You think about John chapter 6, when they were, they were coming to him from all over, and he had the biggest crowds and probably the high point in terms of his quote-unquote popularity in his ministry. What does he do? He talks about them needing to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and he scares them all away. If Jesus was trying to, to head and spark a popular movement, he was doing a really bad job of it. Matter of fact, he was doing the opposite. But here, he orchestrates an event that not only is going to create a huge public display, but it's going to be interpreted by the leadership in Jerusalem and the leadership in Rome as an act of treason, as an act of sedition. And he sets it up this way. He purposely goes about it this way because the hour had come. Over and over again during his earthly ministry, he said, the hour has not yet come. But now is the time to provoke the confrontation that would lead to the last events of his life. The other thing you have to realize as you read this account is that the, there's a lot about this event that reflects what you would expect to happen in the first century when a king enters into his capital city. If a king went out to war and won a great victory in battle, this is the kind of return to the city that you would expect to see. What you would see is you'd see the king coming with all of his soldiers, all his armies in a retinue behind him and his officers riding alongside of him and then people from the little villages along the way joining this retinue and becoming this great parade coming towards the capital city. And the king would be riding the mightiest war steed in the land and he would be dressed in his most glorious armor, shined for the occasion. And he would lead his armies to the city, and once he got close to the city, the people in the capital city would come out streaming through the gates to welcome him back to the city. And you'd have this parade coming with him, and you'd have a parade from the city come out to greet him, and they would praise him and lay down their cloaks, and yes, they'd wave palm branches as signs of victory, as signs of honor, as signs of submission to this conquering king. And he would ride into the capital city and ride up to his throne and celebrate his victory. And it's that common cultural imagery that Jesus is drawing upon this, in this event. We don't do things that big anymore. I don't know, though. It's been a long time since we've seen a coronation of a king or a queen in England, but that's a pretty big splash. That's a big public display. Lots of glory and majesty and honor and submission expressed in that thing. It's not a whole lot different from what you would have seen in a similar situation in the first century. Even our more mundane, low-key, laid-back presidential inaugurations have a lot of these same elements to them as we welcome a new president into office. I've never witnessed anything like that directly. The closest thing I can think of in my own experience, I had the chance to be on Broad Street in Philadelphia when the Philadelphia Phillies came back from winning the world championship in 2008. And, you know, you would think there'd be very little connection, but it was really an amazing experience to stand there. They said there was well over a million people lining that street that day. And it's an amazing experience. Whether, I mean, 
I had people around me that weren't really Phillies fans, but to stand there with over a million people, everybody dressed in the colors of their conquering kings, everybody shouting praises and singing praises to their conquering kings as they came down Broad Street in their royal float, welcomed back to their capital city. Again, there's something in us that understands the need to welcome the king in this fashion. But one part of this picture stands out like a sore thumb. The donkey. Why the donkey? Why, if he was going to do a public display to make this, get this message across, why did he use a donkey? It stands out in the picture like a mustache on the Mona Lisa. Not only does it not belong, it's so out of place that it bothers you. Shockingly inappropriate for any king, let alone the king of kings. It'd kind of be like the Queen of England coming into London on a moped. I mean, it just wouldn't be right. You know, as you think about it, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey would have fit better on Good Friday, wouldn't it? When the Roman soldiers are putting a crown of thorn on his th- thorns on his head and putting a robe around his shoulders and pretending to bow down instead of honoring him, actually mocking him, wouldn't putting him on a donkey to ride him around town, wouldn't that have been something really appropriate to the nature of Good Friday? But to this event, why a donkey? Jesus chose the donkey. Nobody put him on that donkey. He chose the donkey to communicate a message. Why? Well, the first reason is because God had promised that the king would come that way. God had promised that the king would come to Jerusalem in exactly that fashion. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah gave a prophecy. The Old Testament is full of messianic prophecies that were absolutely, literally to the last detail fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And here's another one of them. He prophesied that when the Messiah would come, when the the king would come, the king of the Jews and the king of all nations would come, he would come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. I want to read to you some of the context of that. Tom read the verse itself that's quoted here in Matthew 21, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Let me read to you a little bit of the context. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then that chapter closes in verse 16 saying, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. The king would come on a donkey. When the people saw that and it stood out to them as being inappropriate, it should have reminded them of what the prophet had said 500 years earlier. And I don't know how many might have recognized that. I don't know. I do know, though, that most of the people, even of his disciples, 
had no clue about what it meant. Yes, it was, a signature, it was a signature of the Messiah. It pointed out that this one was the one they had hoped for. But I don't know how many, if any, really understood the meaning behind it, the point of the donkey. It says in John 12, verse 16, this is in John's account of the, the triumphal entry. He says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The disciples, the twelve, didn't even understand. Well, what was the point? Why did he choose the donkey? Why did God choose to put the Messiah on a donkey? Well, it's because of the king's mission. Zechariah said the king would come humble and mounted on a donkey. When the king, the Messiah, came the first time, he came not for glorification, but for humiliation. That was the purpose of his coming, and the donkey points us to that. If the disciples had been paying attention, if you go back one chapter to chapter 20, the very last teaching that Matthew records that the disciples heard before the triumphal entry is this. Listen to his words starting in verse 25 of chapter 20. But Jesus called his disciples to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man, the Messiah, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Messiah had come for humiliation and suffering, not glory and final victory. And he would establish his kingdom by shedding his blood, not by shedding the blood of his enemies. He had come to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. And so he purposely chooses as a symbol of his glorious entrance into the gates of Jerusalem something that the world would have despised. Back in 1828, we had a presidential election here in this country, and the nominee of the Democratic Party was Andrew Jackson. And in that day, the opponents of Andrew Jackson would make fun of him, mock him, and they would call him Jackass Jackson as a play on his name. And Andrew Jackson, and you know, this, see, this is nothing new. We think this is all new, this, this uh, slamming each other in the media. It's been going on since the very beginning. Sinners are sinners in every age. But it's interesting how Jackson responded to that attack. He actually took the donkey as a symbol of his campaign, and he turned it against his opponents. And he used it as a, as a focal point to say, I'm going to, as Dan Quayle would have said a few years ago, I'm going to wear their scorn as a badge of honor. And I think there's a real sense in which that's what Jesus is doing here. My kingdom is not going to be like the kingdoms of this world. I am not going to be a king like those kings. I'm not coming to dominate. And I'm not coming to enforce my will upon people. I am coming to die for sin so that I can change hearts, so that I can create loyal subjects by grace. He is coming 
here into Jerusalem to establish what the world would consider an upside-down kingdom, where the first are last and the last are first, where those who rule rule by serving and laying down their life for those whom they love. You see, if they had read Zechariah's prophecy a little more carefully, I skipped over a couple verses. Let me go back to Zechariah 9. I read to you verse 9, which is what Matthew quotes, and then I read you verse 10, which talks about his universal reign. But let me pick up with that second half of verse 10 and read verse, verse 11 for you. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. See, that's the victory that he had to win first, is he had to shed the blood of the covenant so that those who were in the waterless, bottomless pit of the wrath of God could be delivered from their slavery to sin and death into his eternal kingdom. That's why he was coming and that's why he rode a donkey. Over in chapter 13, just a few chapters later, in chapter 13, verse 1 of Zechariah, this is part of the prophecy there. It says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's why the king had to come. And that's why Jesus did not respond to all these people. And I don't know what the level of faith of the people. I mean, there may have been tens of thousands of people around Jesus from those who who came with him from Bethany and those who came in from Jerusalem out to greet him. I don't know the level of the faith who are people surrounding him. You had the disciples who believed, but obviously they didn't understand what this is all about. And if they didn't understand, I think very few among the larger crowd would have understood what, this, what Jesus was communicating here. But the one thing that's really striking is how Jesus responded to the praises of the people, the, the shouts of his glory that he was hearing around him, this is how he responds according to Luke's account over in Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and the, your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He wept because he was walking into the jaws of the dragon. He was going to death and he knew that the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas largely were going to reject him and ultimately Jerusalem and Israel would be destroyed by Rome. And that's what happened in 70 AD. Not only had Jesus come, not come this time to reestablish the glorious kingdom of David and Solomon and to raise up the throne in Jerusalem over all nations in that time, not only is that not why he came, he actually came so that he could shed his blood, die in our place, and then allow the wrath of God to be poured out. Judgment would come as a result of his, the rejection of him as the true king. And so he wept over Jerusalem. Not only would 
Jerusalem not become this glorious city that they had hoped for and glorious nation for Israel, but Jerusalem was going to be wiped off the map. And they were judged because they did not know the time of his visitation. You see, what the donkey shouts to us is that Jesus' kingdom, yes, it is universal and it is absolute, but it isn't in this age physical and visible. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom that advances by spiritual weapons. That's what he was saying when he stood before the authority over him, Pontius Pilate, in that day. When he was on trial before Pilate, that's why he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying to the church. The kingdom of God, the visible kingdom of God on earth, when he spoke to the church and said to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's a battle of the word and the spirit. And it's the gospel going forward to all nations, pushing back the darkness of ignorance and unbelief and rebellion and sin. That's how the kingdom is established and grows and spreads to the four corners of the earth and it's been happening since the first coming of Christ. The angel said at Jesus' birth, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that's what's ironic, and that brings us to our last point. The donkey is to speak to us of our true need of salvation. Because what's interesting is the people were shouting, Hosanna. And we tend to think in English, Hosanna means praise you or something like that. But it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. And in the Hebrew, it means save us now. They're crying out for salvation. They're saying, save us. And again, it's the right words, but the wrong meaning. For in that day, in the hearts of so many of them, it meant, Jesus, get rid of these stinking Romans. It meant, get rid of our enemies. Take away our oppressors. Take away these taxes that are taking away all of our income and our goods. It meant, give us freedom of religion. Give us freedom to be and do in this world everything we want to do. Take away our sicknesses, our illnesses, our handicaps. Jesus, give us that bread so that we're never hungry in this world. Give us this living water you talked about so we're never thirsty in this world. They wanted salvation, but they wanted salvation in the terms of this world. They wanted Jesus to solve all their earthly problems. Reminds me of a presidential election that was a century later than the one I referred to a moment ago. In 1928, Herbert Hoover ran an election in the United States, and he he won the campaign on this slogan, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Look at how times have changed. Some... (laughs) Some political candidate offers a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage these days. They're like, yeah, well, that and what else? You know, that, that would maybe, that, that's just the beginning of the demands that we have on our politicians, the promises we want them to make. 
But it's all about this life. It's about this fallen world that's going to turn to dust and blow away. Jesus doesn't promise his followers a chicken in every pot or a car in every garage or freedom from heavy taxation or oppression or persecution. He doesn't promise any of that. He promises eternal life. He promises peace with God. He promises eternal meaning and purpose for your life. He promises to know you and to love you and to be with you in all things. You'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You know what's interesting? The phrases that the people use on that day, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. These are all phrases that come from Psalm 118. And it's easy to know why they would be thinking about Psalm 118 because it's one of a handful of psalms that were sung at every Passover celebration. So they'd been memorizing Psalm 118. They'd been preparing to sing it during the Passover week. And so here is this messianic king that everybody's talking about. And so they start singing Psalm 118. But again, listen to the language. Let me give you some of the context of those phrases. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. I'm going to start in verse 17. It says there, I shall not die. But I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they were singing. And missing the point of it is that we need the gate, the one who is the gate, the way, the truth, and the life, the only means by which God and man can be reconciled. We need to enter in through that gate who is Jesus Christ through his shed blood on the cross. He did come as our conquering king, but what he needed to conquer before he could give us all the blessings of his kingdom to come was he needed to conquer our sin. He needed to pay the cost that our sins deserved. He had to take away our guilt and our shame. He had to give us the gift of his righteousness so that we could be at peace with God. Having been reconciled to God then, we are the loyal subjects of this king, not just today, not just in this fallen world, but for all eternity. So if you sing Hosanna today, if you say, save me now, Lord, what kind of a salvation are you looking for? What kind of a salvation are you looking for? Are your prayers to the Lord to say, deliver me from my, from my excuse me, deliver me from my external problems? Deliver me from my diseases, my problems, my angry neighbor, from my unreasonable boss, from my persecuting forces in my life? Make my bank account healthy. Make my kids love me. 
fix my marriage? Is that the kind of salvation you're asking for? You need first to be saved from your sin, and you need to be saved from death, and you need to be saved from the eternal wrath of God. That's what you need saved from. If you put your faith in Christ, he's already delivered you. Then you'll begin to experience the blessings of his kingdom that only get better and better, even in this fallen life, and become unimaginably glorious and wonderful for all eternity in the life to come. As God promised, he sent his king, the one true king, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that donkey was a sign of the kind of kingdom that he came to establish in his first coming and the kind of salvation that we desperately need before he comes again. And that's the note I want to end this message on, is that he is coming again. He will soon come a second time, and he won't be riding a donkey. He is going to come back to put away sin once and for all, to deliver us from the effects of sin once and for all, to establish a perfect world, a new heavens and a new earth according to God's promise, and to reign as the perfect king over a perfected people for all eternity. He is coming again. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It will happen. And here's the description that John, the apostle John gives us in Revelation 19. Listen to this. Compare this to his first coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is what John says, Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's going to look a little different the next time. But those who have had their hearts changed by grace and see him now today to be the true Lord, the King of Kings, are going to rejoice at that coming, not cower in fear. Because our deliverance will be at hand, the complete deliverance that he's promised. And I love the fact, when you think about the triumphal entry and how that happened, Paul uses that same imagery talking about how we're going to respond, us, our, the true believers, the loyal subjects of his kingdom, are going to respond when he appears in the sky on that great white horse. Here's the description for, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's that imagery. Christ is going to come back and with him are going to be the hosts of heaven and the church triumphant that have died and gone before us. They will be reunited to their resurrection bodies. We will be united to our resurrection bodies. We will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord coming just like the Israelites 
came out of Jerusalem to meet the Lord, coming to take his throne. We are going to meet him in the air. We are going to meet our loved ones who have gone before, and we will come rejoicing and praising Christ into the new heavens and the new earth, which we have cleansed with fire, and we will be with him forever. We will actually reign with him forever as his loyal subjects. I hope that you have that hope today. I hope that's what you're living for. I hope that's the salvation that you're crying out for and shouting Hosanna about. Because everything else is going to turn to dust, blow away, ultimately be burned and destroyed forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for opening our eyes to see his glory. It's not because of anything in us, but by your grace alone. Your spirit has shown us who he is. Your spirit has called us to him. Your spirit has changed our hearts so that we, instead of rebelling against him as our true king, we have come to love him and serve him. Lord, I pray that we would spend our time waging war, a spiritual war, in representing a spiritual kingdom, taking the word of God, the gospel, and working in the power of the Holy Spirit, bring that to those who are lost, who are enslaved by sin and death, show them the true king, and show them the means by which he has provided these gates of righteousness into the presence of God. Father, may we be used in his service this day. We pray in Christ's name, amen.